Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Auto Sport Podcast. We look back at Formula 5000, all the fun of F1 for a fraction of the cost. Well, there's lots of talk these days about uh, Formula One and how you can do a, a cheaper, more exciting Formula One. And there was once a category that was uh, described by Ben Anderson, who is one of my guests recently, as the closest you could get to Formula One without quite being Formula One. Significant power, quick cars, and it was, uh, it was uh, for a period, a, a great category to race in, I think, late 60s through to the very early 80s. Uh, it ran in various forms. We're talking about Formula 5000, 5000 for five litre engines i'm your host ed straw and joining me are, are a trio who all have uh, varying f5000 credentials seeing as i've already mentioned ben i'll uh, i'll mention ben first now you have right. raced an f5000 car yes i have yeah i've, I've driven three uh, different formula 5000 cars and was lucky enough to to race one of them at the uh silverstone classic in i think it was 2012 uh a peter gethin memorial trophy um at the kind invitation of Simon Hadfield, who I'm sure you'll introduce shortly. Um, yeah, great privilege. Um, it remains one of the standout types of car that I've driven in my uh, uh, lucky autosport track testing career. Well, my next guest is someone we've we've waited far too long to get onto an autosport podcast. is is Marcus Pye, who's uh, an autosport legend and has been been around far longer than the uh, than than the rest of us. And of course, another driver with uh, F5000 pedigree. Well, certainly enjoyed my 5,000 from the early days when I was just an enthusiast at, uh, at trackside. I went to my first uh, 5,000 race in 1971. And um, so I went to watch. Uh, I went as a marshal in the mid-70s and then I joined Autosport in 1977. So uh, while 5,000 had stopped at that point, we saw the rise of 5,000 as a historic class. And I've driven probably a dozen of them, raced probably half a dozen of them. And um, they're just magic. I love them to bits. I should ask you your best result, really. Because <laughs> you... Mm, this. But you're a quick racing driver, Mark. Uh, well, I've done, done a lot of racing over the years. I mean, I've driven 535 race cars. So, uh, 
Uh, not as many as Simon probably, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, been in a very privileged position. But uh, no, has some very good runs in the 5000s and uh, um, and also some of the Formula 2 cars and things that we've run alongside the 5000s with the Historic Sports Car Club. And my final guest, as was referenced, uh, Simon Hadfield, who races all things historic and prepares all things historic. And uh, obviously you've uh, you've had plenty of seat time in, in 5000 machinery. Indeed. I think I bought my first one having sat on the grid in a Formula Atlantic car with a Formula 5000 on pole, thinking I really ought to have one of those. <laughs> um, and um, I bought a, a Trojan, the ex-John Watson Trojan, and it sort of spiraled from there. The very first car I drove, I didn't own. That was belonged to a guy called Sean Mooney, a McLaren M10. Not too much downforce. So that really was an eye-opener. It just went like snot off a shiny stick getting the trojan all of a sudden getting some downforce and some uh um just a a lot more sophisticated car really opened my eyes to what a 5000 could be and then more lola t33 uh t330 um then 332 that i owned with marcus he he uh admits to tell us that one um and i just love the category great cars great fun and sensibly uh, um, attainable technology well let's uh, before we get into to, to the cars themselves perhaps marcus you're best placed for this just to give us a little bit of context and overview of what f5000 was obviously it was imported to, to the uk from the formula a regs in uh, in the us it's john webb wasn't it who, uh, who brought it over here it was. I mean, he was perhaps the greatest promoter in the history of, uh, of British motorsport. And behind Formula Ford, of course. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's 52 years old. But um, he recognised that uh, Formula A in the States, which was a, a stock block, so um, engines from your sedan car on the road, um, stock block five-litre engine uh, would be a great race category. They proved it. Uh, it kicked off in, in 68 in the States, and he brought it here in 69. There was a lot of fanfare about it because, of course, the cars are big, they're noisy. Um, the running costs were um, attainable, and um, they, there was a fairly decent prize fund put in, uh, which drew in some very, very good teams and some exceptionally good drivers. I mean, Peter Gethin being the king for uh, the first um, couple of years in McLarens, and those McLarens were just iconic designs, that sort of Coke bottle style. Simon talked about having one. I've raced one as well, which was very, very uh, fortunate uh, on the spur of the moment with no practice, but um, um, it's a, a beautifully balanced car, a really nice thing. But it drew in the people who were perhaps stuck in a rut. Uh, maybe they didn't want to do Formula 3. Maybe they'd outgrown Formula 3. And it gave them the chance to drive a really big, powerful, grown-up car. Um, and on occasions, against the Formula 1 cars of the, the 70s as well, in the non-championship races, things like the um, Race of Champions at Brands Hatch, the International Trophy at Silverstone and the Alton Park Gold Cup, they um, they let those cars in. I guess Peter Gethin's a great example of that. Yeah, Gethin's, um, uh, Gethin's career in Formula 5000 kind of was either side of his Formula 1 uh, career as well, because he had that wonderful win uh, in 71 in the Italian Grand Prix for BRM. But um, he was still racing uh, Formula 5000 cars right at the end of the period for Count van der Straten, the, uh, uh, the Belgian beer baron, um, who ran a fantastic team for much of the duration of 5000, and he just loved it. Um, he was a really, really great guy who liked to put good drivers in his cars, ran them properly, ran them with decent budgets, and um, did a fair share of winning because Teddy Pellet, uh, one of his protégés, also won um, two Formula 5000 championships. And in terms of the, the cars themselves, Simon, what sort of power and pace are you, are you talking about compared to a Formula 1 car of the of the era, shall we say? Typically about the same horsepower. Much more torque, but much more weight. What you couldn't do was to sort of fling it around like a uh, Formula 1 car, unless, famously, you were Jody Schechter. Because Jody Schechter, when he went to America, I think as a sort of sideline to get him away from the McLaren F1 team, let him find his feet, in the Trojan, he was outstanding. Probably the most exuberant anyone's ever been in one. Um, And nicked the championship there, while Redman, who I think was probably the best 5,000 driver, Brian Redman, um, there ever had been, was away doing Ferrari sports car duty. So... Um, contemporary with a Formula One car, 
on a good day, probably about as fast in America, where they had free tyres. It is alleged that over here, they were always prevented from having Formula 1 specification tyres, so they were kept just a little bit slower than Formula 1s. Famously, um, Peter Gethin won the race of champions, beating all the Formula 1 cars, but most of them were in the pits. So it's not quite a straightforward, actually, you know, we've, we've dusted everybody. This was 73? 73, yeah. Um, so that was kind of its shining moment in, in the head-to-head races. But it's a, a matter of other things happened rather than, say, him just destroying everybody. Well, to bring you in, Ben, obviously you've had recent first experience of 5,000 cars, and obviously Simon referenced there the, the kind of driving style. And I think people tend to think F5,000 cars because they're seen as sort of slightly crude, powerful, that, that you could manhandle them, but they are because of the, the way the configuration of the car, you do have to keep them kind of quite sensible and settled and under under control. Yeah, if you look at pictures of them, they, they probably evoke, to people who aren't familiar with Formula 5000, but are familiar with Formula 1, the sort of Ronnie Peterson type cars, big, wide, rear tyres, narrow front ones, lots of opposite locks, sideways, not too much downforce, so you can drift and get away with it. I'm in awe of Schecter driving the Trojan in the way you describe, Simon, because in the 5000s, uh, I drove at your behest, obviously very fortunate, uh, it didn't feel like you could you could drive those cars that way at all. Um, so much weight hanging over the the rear axle, um, and massively overgripped at the back relative to the front. So every time you try to do anything clever on a corner entry or with the brakes, you feel lots of understeer and then a big snap, and the the rear just trying to to pivot on you. So I found that the driving style was really very calm corner entry and thinking always about the corner exit and throttle. Drive the car on the throttle. Use all of that massive rear grip and all of that torque to just fire yourself down the next straight as quickly as you can go. I think Schechter's talent was very interesting because um, obviously we saw him here in Formula Ford and Escort Mexicos and bits and pieces and very quickly he was pretty much catapulted into uh, into Formula 1, briefly by a bit of Formula 2 and McLaren M21 in an evolution became the Trojan T101-5000 but Schechter was also magnificent um, in that Vasek Polak uh, Porsche 917-10 turbo car, which he, I mean, he just threw that around. It had something like 1,300 horsepower. And he said it was like uh, riding a bicycle with this massive power plant in the back. Uh, absolutely awesome. Why do you think F5000 worked so well? Because it did proliferate quite quickly. It wasn't just the UK that adopted it. Obviously, it became popular in Europe, Southern Hemisphere, Australia. So it, it really did. It's one of these categories that seemed to capture the imagination and was right for its time. I was going to say exactly that. The cars, as Ben was saying, looked big, spectacular. They were colourful. And um, some of the characters who were driving them were really colourful as well. People like Frank Gardner, who was a sort of works Lola uh, development driver at the time, had been around a very long time because he'd won British um, uh, saloon car championships. He'd raced in all manner of things, really over here since the very beginning of the 60s. But um, he, he won that championship in 71 um, in a, a very bizarre car for much of the season, the Lola T300, which was a, a little Formula 2 uh, chassis uh, with a Chevy, um, small block Chevy nailed to his shoulders. It was a fairly dangerous old thing, but um, he, he drove them really well. And of course, the spectators at Trackside, and there were a lot of spectators at Trackside in those days, loved the noise. They loved the sheer spectacle, the smell. And in the States, when you see them run, even these days, it's the smell of the fuel, I think, that sort of intoxicates the, uh, uh, the supporters at uh, Trackside. I think the noise is a massively important point i mean until i was fortunate enough earlier this year to drive a range of lotus formula one cars for autosport the 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 chevron b37 that i got to drive um at the silverstone classic it remained until this year the only car that i've sat in in the pits at silverstone just fired up and sat on tick over then revving the engine and it draws a crowd of people around it because they're so so drawn by the outstanding sound that they make and it's a it's a massive emotive part of uh, of what makes formula 5000 so special but but the, the i think technically the issue was it was accessible you could rebuild a chevrolet engine in australia if you had a dfe really had to come back over here you could rebuild a chevrolet very evidently in north america you could rebuild them in south america they tried they had races at monza they had races in france but each time, I think the the over here, the Formula One promoters really got against it as as being 
a threat. In the countries where there was no generic big racing, it ruled the roost. And until the SCCA got sidetracked into the bizarre central seat Can-Am cars, trying to go back to a sort of a, a, a chimera that had gone, you know, the, the old Can-Am series, it's, it's important that the accessibility allowed people everywhere to prepare and race them hard. That's true. But I mean, the engines in the um, uh, in the early stages, they were pretty limited. They were pretty hamstrung by the iron cylinder heads, weren't they, in the majority of cases? And the attrition rate in the uh, in the races was ridiculously high sometimes because you ran them. And sometimes they actually had to make the the race meetings two heats. Uh, so two, two short heats and maybe an aggregate result or maybe a, uh, two separate results was better than a final. You didn't have so many drop valves, etc. by <laughs> the end of it. Um, but uh, no, brilliant things. The noise, though, was important. And I remember, just like Ben, I, mean, I, I had my first Formula 5000 race, again, courtesy of Simon, in the Brown Trojan, the car that, uh, that John Watson had driven at the end of 1973. The one I was and, supposed to race originally, yeah. actually. And it's yeah. an absolutely staggering thing. But the thing that got me, as I was thundering down the, um, the hangar straight, side by side with Sid Hool in Duncan Dayton's Brabham Booty 33, with the DFE screaming away, and we're both flat chat looking at each other thinking, these cars don't belong to us. Let's be a bit careful when we get to stow. What I remember more than anything else was the fact that I could hear my heart beating and my uh, heart pulsing in my crash helmet over the timbre of the engine, which is absolutely staggering. I found that almost impossible to believe, but its pulsing sensation was amazing. I guess that's that's what you kind of want in a racing car, isn't it? A certain rawness and. Uh sort of visceral thing that means you really know you're in something quick and something that's a bit a bit dangerous you, you want to you want to know you're living that's for sure yeah. and you certainly do when you're going down the hangar straight yeah, well, or, or mm. through the craner curves i mean there's there's nothing better than sitting in one and firing it up you feel everything through the seat just just the rumble as it's as it's ticking over and it just and you think that's a gal that's a gallon of fuel you just think you can't wait to get out on the track it it really fires the raw essence of what motorsport's about i think the, the, the cars are phenomenal bits of kit it, it was good here i think 73 end of 73 into 74 was the the height here in in england but in america the number of drivers they got and the quality of the drivers they got was astonishing um when you had andretti uh unza redmond Schechter, and the list goes on and on and on they probably had as good a driving standard as Formula One had as a whole for that short period. Coupled with a tyre war, at one point I believe that Andretti was quicker at the Glen than he had been in a Formula One car, which is, you know, people think they're crude. People think that they're a bit sort of, you know, bits knocked up from bits left lying around the workshop. No, these were sophisticated cars. And with the right engine, the right preparation, the right driver, they were serious. Uh, so, in terms of being more more accessible, what what was it about them that made them cheaper? I guess I mean the engine's part of it, but in terms of cars of similar pace, they, they should you kind of automatically assume they should be a similar similar cost as a say a Formula One car. In the main, they were customer cars, so very few people made a specific five thousand car for themselves. So you went to Lola or you went to Trojan, or you went to Chevron, and because there were m- multiple manufacturers. There was a price war. They were strong. You know, wishbones, you could manhandle the car. These weren't sort of uh, almost the F1 cars at the time were a bit effete. You know, they were very delicate. They, they were made for a, 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 a different customer, if you like. Okay. The, fi- the 5000s being a generic customer car were robust in the main. Uh, just a better thing. Also, the fact that you took them all over America meant they had to be better built because if you were miles from anywhere, you couldn't just repair them in the same way. So uh, various, I think, sort of, they they, they gathered... Um, people spoke about them in a certain way, rather sort of sniffly over here, revered possibly in other countries. In Australia, where it was the national championship for a long time, again, these were looked back as uh, what they call the modern cars, taxis. You know, this was the last hurrah of the proper open-wheel racing car. 
But what's interesting, I think, is that, you know, the engine power and the rest of it. Because in the early days um, of the three-liter um, Cosworth DFE engine, which debuted in, in 67, winning at Zandvoort, um, it didn't make much power. Simon would tell us exactly probably what it made. About 400. About 400. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the end of the DFE uh, era, the sort of short-stroke engines were making well over 500. But you could make that in a, in a heartbeat from a um, uh, from from a stock block Chevy, and there were other manufacturers involved. There were Fords and AMCs and Pontiacs, and all sorts of things did appear in uh, Dodge for a while. Um, but but by and large, you had a good old slugging five hundred and a bit or something like that. Uh, you had torque from nothing. Uh, didn't rev as high as a DFE, but um, the average uh, the average privateer who had one could give a reasonable account of himself, and if it was still there at the end of the race, um, be a, a result, um, all good. But um, I, I was speaking when I was down in um, in New Zealand last with Kenny Smith, who's an absolute legend, and he's in his mid seventies now. He's been racing for more than uh, I think more than sixty years, uh, which is staggering. He did five thousand in the day. Um, we were talking about the engine power. Kenny's uh, about four foot two, um, so he sits a long way from the accident, which probably has quite a lot to do with his speed, apart from and amazing, his longevity, <laughs> amazing ability. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and he's had a couple of big bangs in the in the Lola three thirty twos. I was asking about it, relative engine power. And he said, "Mate," he said, "back in the day, we had uh, my best engine gave five hundred and twenty seven uh, brake horsepower." He said, "Now I've got five hundred and seventy, and mine's not the sharpest one in the pack." So um, you, you do wonder whether some of them are a little bit more special than others, but they do run um, pretty advanced aluminium cylinder heads, etc., uh, which have an advantage in terms of power they produce um, and also reliability. So given the, the popularity of it, it's been touched on a little bit in terms of the US with the, uh, with what happened with, with Canon, but why did 5000 have a relatively short shelf life because it, go, it goes sort of mid-70s being really strong to certainly in, in Europe disappearing fairly fairly shortly afterwards. I uh, I would say costs and the attraction of other types of racing. Formula 2 was really uh, on the up then. So by 77, you had the French and the Italians putting a lot of money into F2. It was a better place to earn money, to take sponsors, than the kind of backwater water of, of 5,000. In America... It was nobbled because they put the silly bodies on. Then ground effects came in and all of a sudden you got back to more or less bespoke cars. You had cars being built for teams. So the landscape changed around it. It wasn't the fact that the cars were poor or the racing was bad, just other hipper things. And it's ever thus. It's exactly the same today. You know, a new attraction comes along and people disappear off and do that yeah cyclical support and there was actually a, a ground effect uh, formula 5000 made um gary cooper in adelaide south australia made uh, an elfin um, but it never really kind of proved itself it was a bit near the end of the game uh, but it was interesting to see that um, someone actually thought let's try to apply some formula one values to this um, but uh, say it didn't have the resources to make it work i suspect but simon's right about the formula two thing the rise of formula two um, while it was um, while it was still a four-cylinder formula because uh, eventually there were sort of uh, v6 renaults and and v6 hondas and bits and pieces which made so much more power than Thing else was a wonderful place to be if you look now the the incredible rise in historic formula 2 racing i think we're gonna have a grid of something like 50 cars at the silverstone classic uh, later this month um which is absolutely unprecedented unprecedented in its day well the silverstone classic event that i did we shared the grid with formula 2 cars didn't we and the performance of the top running 5000s versus the top running f2s wasn't much different i mean is 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 that fairly indicative of what it was like back in the day? Was F2 a step ahead as well? And that's why people started to go it, that if, way. It, when, when it became Aurora and they ran together, yes, it was very close. If a really good guy came out, Warwick or someone, they could run with the, the best sort of Formula um, 2 car, uh, with the best 5000s. But it's um, in Australia, it was supplanted by Atlantic getting cheaper, more cars, and they felt they could go to Macau, they could go to Singapore, they could race in other places where 5,000 didn't go. I think that the race we did at um, Silverstone was probably the biggest grid 
okay, it was amalgamated. There were probably more 5,000s on that grid than, than any race I can remember doing. Mm. But they- I remember that one where the um, all the guys came up from New Zealand and they did Brands Hatch and Silverstone. I did that one. In a, in a Lola that, um, that Simon provided, Don Halliday's T330, which was absolutely incredible because that was on the old Grand Prix circuit where you had the long sweeping left at uh, Abbey. And I remember being in this thing. with a, In 73, there was no rear overhang uh, limit for the car. So, I mean, as, as Charlie Cox would have said on the old touring car commentary, he said, yeah, the wing was back in the next postcode. But it was absolutely awesome because I didn't do a, a test day in it, but I could pull nearly 160 through the um, through the corner. And this is a sort of, you know, a, a sort of middle-aged journo having a go. But it was a massive field. And um, I ran fifth in a field of 40. Um, and absolutely loved every second of it. And then it, poor little thing, broke. Yeah, I had a similar similar end to my escapade. I remember being... You were starring. Race two of the weekend, obviously for an event named after Gethin, with Gethin's son, Nick, present to do the trophy presentation at the end of the race. Uh, and he didn't actually know a lot about his father's racing career. He said that dad kept it all very separate. You know, he didn't bring racing home with him. Uh, and obviously died before his time. So uh, Nick was kind of a, on a sort of mission of discovery and he sat in the car in the collecting area before the race and we fired it up and you could see him having this wonderful emotional moment as he connected with his father's life and it inspired him to go racing. He subsequently did his license and I think he raced in F- historic uh, if, Formula if, 4, 4 2000. 2000. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and did a few races, which was so it's brilliant to inspire that. And I remember him saying, I'll see you at the end on the podium. And I ran third in this race. Uh, Michael Lyons' car broke, I think, and, and you and Stretton were having a battle just down the road in front of me. And I thought, oh, I'm going to finish on the podium in my first weekend in 5,000. What a brilliant end. And the, the transmission failed, I think, three or three or four laps from the end. Yeah, you, you were already um, considerably um, uh, more um, competent than uh, the previous Formula V ace who was in uh, a Formula 5,000, which was Fred Saunders with a Crosley Rover uh, back in the early days. 5,000 did seem to kind of place as a really popular historic racing category. It wasn't that lay fallow for a few decades and got rediscovered. What, what, so why is it so popular? I guess many of the reasons that made it so popular in period. I think what it was initially was that um, the cars that Simon has sort of said had gone through that phase of being current. Then there was the Shell Sport Group 8, kind of like a Super Libra championship after 5,000 had finished over here in 75. And then there were, you know, you had Formula um, 2s and odd Formula 1s and, and 5,000 things all got sucked into one with some Atlantics and things. But um, after a while, the 5,000s all just filtered away and they were, they were tucked up in barns and garages and didn't do much. And they were, for a while, really inexpensive because there was nowhere for them to play. And um, I think one or two sort of people very wisely thought, you know, with an eye to the future, let's pick one up. Um, we can probably knock together a, um, a pushrod Chevy. That's not going to be too difficult. And it doesn't matter. If I would say out of all the, you know, the 5,000 races we've seen in historics over the years, there's probably three or four drivers, Simon among them, who can use all the power. Uh, for the vast majority of people, it doesn't matter whether you've got 530 horsepower or a very talky 460. In fact, for most people, less power and more torque makes the cars more drivable. So you can look pretty competent and pretty reasonable um, in, an old, uh, in an older car. But they're, they're wonderful things. Uh, they were available very cheaply, and there were people who bought them for a few grand. A few others were, were um, bastardised or cannibalised to make super saloon cars. And um, if you think, you think that uh, you know, they were crazy, there were some fantastic super saloons that were based on old 5000s. Many of them have come back, and they've been sort of reconfigured uh, as 5000s. But by the same token, the guys who were doing super saloons at its height in the early 70s, the Mick Hills uh, and John Turner's of this world, um, and Mick had uh, a variety of cars. He had the, the two um, Ford Capri V8s. He had the VW Beetle V8 that was based on the corners and, and, and back end of a Trojan T102. He had a Skoda with a big engine as well. And John Turner had the first Skoda, which was a leader, uh, not a very good Formula 5000 car. It was actually under, underneath, um, probably not a very good Super Saloon either, but it looked fabulous. Um, and those sort of cars were tuppence halfpenny when they were out of vogue. 
Um, so it did give people the opportunity to get cars. And the guys um, like the Barry brothers down in Sittingbourne who have had for more than 35 years the same car they mechanicked on for Keith Holland uh, back in the day, back in, uh, the, uh, in 1974. Just extraordinary. But they remain absolutely wonderful things. They're great, great beasts. Uh, thing. Everyone who who looks at them in the paddock has a big smile on their face because they, they think back to the days when when racing cars were different. They all had personalities. And whether they were a good 5,000 or a bad 5,000, like a good Formula 2 or a bad Formula 2, they all had their place uh, on the grid. Now, it's difficult to tell one car from another, modern ones, and most of the, um, uh, and most of the subclasses are um, single make anyway. But, but didn't you find, when you drove them, that... The, in the paddock, everybody's like, ooh, aren't they scary? Right? And th- when you get one sorted and everything plays together, they're actually a really nice race car. They're really effective. And all the systems work together once you get the setup in the right place. But you, you, didn't, you weren't overawed, were you? No, not at all. Um, but, I mean, I was respectful to start with, probably mainly excited because i think the thing is to have that level of performance for that simplicity of car it's very difficult to find that kind of mix anywhere else um my introduction was at mallory park i was testing my formula v much 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 lower level of performance and grip in that and you rocked up for you know one of those classic mallory half day test days on the wednesday and you had the car then you're like why didn't you have a go and so i just jumped in and did a few laps around mallory park in the trojan and my God, it just changed my perception of that circuit. Suddenly, a three-corner circuit was a proper four-corner <laughs> circuit. And uh, it's, it's the speed that you could do um, without really trying was, was phenomenal. Um, and then when you start to really lean on the cars, like, you just have to kind of get over, I guess, the initial shock of how much grunt they have. But that grunt is your friend. And you know they have, as I said before, such big tyres, especially at the rear. There is a lot of grip to exploit, but the challenge is offsetting that against the weight imbalance. So it's easy to get a little bit too cocky and then start to try and do things with the car that it won't like with the front end. And then it will scare you because it will snap or do something you really don't like. And then you'll you'll back off. Like the key is to obviously drive the car to its own strengths, which is slightly peculiar compared to conventional single-seater of that type, a Formula 1 car. I drove the Lotus 72 in this uh, multiple Lotus anniversary track test we did, and that felt to me very similar to the 5000, except it didn't quite have the grunt, and that's because, I guess, they were struggling to get so much power out of the DFV, and as Marcus mentioned, it's much easier to get it out of the stock block uh, Chevy. Um, But it had the balance. That car behave predictably whatever you did in all types of corners so you could feel much more confident in the handling of the formula one car the 5000 it's just got a few quirks that you have to live with but once you accept they're there it's enormous fun to drive and you, you just start to take the different cues you know the the rear tires just starting to 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 it feels like a sort of chattering or chuntering as you as you just lean on it properly and get the slip on the exit and um, trying not to be too greedy on the entry because as i say you'll just get a snap at, at mid corner when it finally grips and just using all the power to fly down the straights there's very few things that can go so quickly uh, accelerate so quickly should i say down a down the hangar straight at silverstone but just never stops accelerating never it? stops no it's it's phenomenal my, my son had his first race in a 5000 last year um so he went testing first in the Lola and he came in and he just sat there and he opened his visor. He's got big eyes and you can just see the corners of this huge grin. So it's all right then? He said, yep, yep, that ticks a lot of boxes. And he got the Silverstone and he just loved it. But it was the little things. He said, having raced mostly a Formula Atlantic and then you're quicker in the corners and a large number of the Formula 2s and then they all wave by. Sit in the 5,000, you're gone, straight past, bye suckers, this is mine now. And he said that, that the sheer thrill of accelerating past everything is unparalleled. And it's, we're, we're sort of like a bit blasé now, we've driven all kinds of things. Yeah, this is okay. That first time when you light it and it goes forward, it, there's, 
Almost nothing like it. And I think the fact that it does pull from absolutely nothing, whereas in a Formula One DFE car, you've got to get it sort of past about seven and a half thousand, something like that, and then it will suddenly come screaming up onto cam. With the, with the, uh, the good old slugging V8, you just uh, aim it and fire. And uh, it, it's just brilliant. I mean, when I first drove um, the Trojan, um, I'd done very little running I don't think I've done any running at all in actual fact because I was going to have a go in a 330 Lola when I ended up racing but um, that had a, a technical issue at Donington I was just standing at the end of the pit lane waiting to get in I said to Simon who was in it um, seems to have some water pouring out from underneath what's that all about ah back to the workshop then yeah but, that will uh, happen won't it but, <laughs> yeah, no, I think to I think to put it in perspective um, you know now you've got some fantastically quick road cars and the rest of it but for most people you don't get to drive those sort of things on on the street but a formula 5000 from naught to 100 and back to naught is probably sort of seven and a half seconds or something like that and given that it's over 600 kilos without you on board um you know, kind of uh, sets a uh, sets a standard but what is amazing now is i think i've only driven probably one um, road car of which i think accelerates harder than the formula 5000 that's a tesla model s which is absolutely unbelievable you don't get the soundtrack in the Tesla. Well, there is, yes. <laughs> I think that the uh, the unreliability is in part caused because there's a lot of mass. There's a lot of horsepower, and you're asking gearboxes and stuff to do an awful lot. So in that respect, yeah, you've got to stay in front of them. Possibly the F1 car being that little bit lighter, a little bit more gentle. There are bits and pieces because really. From the lap times, from the loadings, the car doesn't know it's not an F1 car. There's, def- there's definitely an element of unreliability. I know they you mentioned earlier they were, they were built in a tougher way in period because they had to be for practical reasons. But every time I drove one, there was a problem, whether it be an engine failure or a transmission failure. I think I had a puncture on my first run in the Trojan. I had about two or three punctures during the Silverstone It's funny weekend. that. I had a puncture in the 332 Lola at, uh, on my first run in that, the one that Simon and I uh, found in North America. And um, that sport, uh, a lovely day out, because I couldn't normally afford to go testing, but thought we bit the bullet and did it. And um, that day was fascinating because it was Brands Grand Prix circuit, a rare test there. And I went out and straight away, I found myself on track with Tony Trimmer, who'd raced Formula 5000 cars for years and years and years, and was in Frank Lyons' Lola T330-332. And I sat myself on Tony Trimmer's gearbox for five or six laps, including a bit where it was damp out of the back on the Grand Prix circuit, had the best free Formula 5000 driving lesson I'll ever have. But, there's a good story, when we bought the 332, I'm sitting at work one day, and the phone rings, and it's Marcus. And he said, oh, great news, we bought a Lola 332. I said, have we? And how the, are we going to pay for that then? And so there was an element of shuffling stuff around. Um, actually went, Marcus, something happened at home, and so I went with James to Seattle to buy it. Luckily, we were the most fastidious owner. And that was interesting because that was a late 332, probably the landmark car. It's the one you see in every photograph. It's the one that Brian Redman won all his championships in. It's what Andretti raised. It's what um, Bob Evans won the last British last cha- British championship. Last one was uh, no was uh, Pellet. Evans won in seventy four, but oh, yeah, three three two. Yeah. So, and this was a car which had been developed from the three hundred, then via the three thirty, and then they built several types of three three two. They kept trying to replace it but couldn't make a better car. They could make cars that were probably just about as good, but the 332, everyone knew the lifing of all the components. And it was a privilege for three or four years for us to own it. Um, Just uh, almost the perfect race car. It it was a lovely thing and an amazing coincidence as so many of these things are in racing. We'd had... Um, we'd found the Keki Rosberg Formula 2 Chevron B40 um, in the south of France um, and still with its original heart engine and we were very excited about that and it had been through an auction and no one had bought it and I said to Simon, look, you know, we ought to be having this 
And the significance of that car for me was I joined Autosport in July of 77, the first Sunday that I was actually an Autosport staff member, which I was for 20 years. Keke Rosberg finished second in both heats at Enna Pergusa around the lake in Sicily in this very Chevron and won it on aggregates. So here we had an opportunity to buy this glorious car, which had been a bit knocked around in French hill climbing over the years, but Simon and his guys managed to put it together absolutely stunningly as usual. Um, but that could then make way for uh, something else, which it had to do, because we were in New Zealand and we sent three um, Formula 5000s down on a boat um, to do the um, the series down there. And unfortunately, the boat broke down, passing Italy or somewhere like that. And um, the nearest the cars got to us in Christchurch was Perth in Western Australia, which was some several thousand miles away. So Simon and Michael Scriver were able to borrow um, 5,000s from guys down there who sort of happily um, let them use them. I ended up with a Chevron sports car for the weekend, which was absolutely brilliant as well. And um, while knocking around in the wet, um, in the paddock with nothing running, um, a gentleman from the States came up to me and said, yeah, great of you boys to bring these cars down. Uh, matter of fact, I've got a T3032 back at home and I've, I'm finished with racing. I've, I've done with it. Uh, so I'm going to sell it. So I said, oh, that sounds really good. And he was, I thought, mm, maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. The following day, he arrived back with the pictures of it in the workshop. It sought me out in the paddock. I said, this is what it is. I said, oh, what a buy it, what a buy it. I'm, I'm obliged to ask, what was the history of that? The history of the car was very interesting because it didn't do very much in period. Um, it, was, um, it was sold to a guy in California, a guy called Gary Wilson. Um, Sting Racing. Later had a, um, they made a, a massive Can-Am car, and it was massive, about twice the size it should have been. Um, he didn't use it very much. He used it at Long Beach um, in the early 5,000 races there. Um, it, I think, originally had been sold to Bill Simpson, the racewear man, but he hadn't raced, their guys hadn't raced it. They'd taken it testing a couple of times. So Gary Wilson ended up with the car. He then sold it to a guy, um, they were in Florida. He then sold it to a guy, sorry, they were in California. He then sold it to a guy in Florida who didn't do much with it, who then sold it to a guy in Muttontown, New Jersey, um, who didn't do much with it apart from crash it. So they had the chassis redone and then it went over to to washington where glenn brown ended up with it so it had done a complete lap uh, of north america and about 23 races when we got it and so i knew it was a it was a, a good bit of kit and um uh, and, and thus it proved but um but glenn was was a real gentleman and he said i'm, I'm going to be away on holiday for a few months so um you've got first refusal call me on such a date in june and i duly did and we ended up with it is the three three two pretty much the undisputed king of five thousand? Has any so. uh, any other ones? You'd like no, to? we. Well, you're going to dispute the undisputable. I, now. I yes, <laughs> because I've got other cars. No, <laughs> the in the period they sold more cars, so there was a critical mass. Basically, the odd um, three hundreds, uh, sorry, three thirties and three thirty twos. And you could, you could, a lot of people upgraded their 330s to 332s. So a lot of them on the grid, Lola and Carl Haas, through Carl Haas, had a really good spare system. They were very, very well looked after. Today, they're a huge car, really big, really, it's on the maximum width, it's on the maximum length. We now know that actually there are things which you can do better. You can make them slightly narrow. Not this car, but other cars were slightly smaller, slightly narrower, slightly um, higher speeds. There's another wrinkle. In 75, the wings came forward. Okay, No, 74. So in 73, there was no rear overhang rule. So a 73 car with the wing mounted further back allowed you to get the same downforce with a lot less drag. Into 74 and 75, as the wings came forward, they had to massively increase the size of the rear wing. So there's actually reasons why a 73 car can be a better. But that's a, a wrinkle in history. That in, in, in the period, you couldn't race a 73 car against a 74 car, so there was no way to tell. But what, what um, name-dropping a tad here, Brian Redmond said to me, was they had their uh, 400, he said, which was very good, very competent, but no better than the 332. Then they bought out the 430, the sort of forward control car. Of which there were three. Yeah. Again, he said it was a, it was okay. It was as quick as the 332. 
but it wasn't a step forward. And they knew how to run the 3-3-2. They knew the setups, the ratios, the lifing, bearings, and so on. And she said, so we stayed with what we knew. They peaked. Yeah, but it, it, I think that Brian Redman was by far the best 5,000 driver. Nobody, for me, ever really got close over, a, over a, a length of time. Other people might have been faster now and again. Probably Mario at the height of the tyre wars with the trick tyres. But the car wasn't reliable enough to take Brian on. Brian had the most amazing finishing record. I think one year, one single retirement. That's a brilliant preparation, very, very intelligent driving, and that's what makes the complete person. He won lots of races. I mean, he, he won loads of races in the, in the States. He also won the, the race um, at Brands Hatch, which was the first one I saw, uh, in the McLaren M18, which was a pretty ghastly bit of kit. But um, at the end of the day, you know, you've got to be there at the end, and he, and he won that, and I'm Absolutely thrilled to bits to uh, have seen Brian Redman win a 5,000 race, um, having not been and seen them in the States. Um, and he was also the last person to drive the 332 we had uh, before we got it because he demoed it somewhere. And um, I rang him up um, over a Goodwood weekend when he was here for the uh, revival one September and said, Brian, look, apropos of nothing much, um, you've, you've had a go in this car. Um, is, it a, is it a nice bit of kit? Um, or should we walk away from it now, sort of no pack drill? And he said, no, it's absolutely fantastic, so uh, go and do it. Which, and he was so encouraging, and he's such a, a gentleman, such a lovely bloke. But, um, yeah, really, really good stuff. But it's, it's interesting what Simon says about the, uh, about the, the differences in the cars over the years. Um, I've raced the things from the McLaren M10B like Simon did um, through to the uh, the wonderful Chevron B37 that um, you also uh, raced, Ben. And from my perspective, and I'm not coming to it from the uh, perhaps the level of expectation of, 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 of you guys, but um, I always reckoned of the of the three of them, the three the three thirty Lola with the big overhang wing was just peerless. Uh, in the fast corners uh, the trojan was awesome in the slow corners and the chevron being so small and petite really being a kind of a formula two car uh, with a chevy in it was um, perhaps a better overall package but it didn't get the development and of course there was only one of them it was all quite political uh, vds for running lolas at the time and uh, chevron was sort of bit down on its luck uh, the car was outstanding but um, didn't get uh, didn't get its sort of day in the sun I, lo- I loved racing the, the Chevron at Silverstone and that, that massive grid. But what's the health of the category like historic now? Because it's, it, you know, it's, it's seven years since. I, I, my personal view is I don't think they police it very well. And so we've decided really we have four cars in our store all ready to go. And we don't run them because I don't want to run against people who are not running legally. Um, they say a light touch promotes more cars. I think it's shown that a light touch actually means people won't come out and race because you're not sure what you're racing against. I think even in New Zealand, where there were 20 or 30 active cars at one point, the grids are down to a dozen or so, something like that. So it's a mixture of all sorts of things. It's the costs, it's the track car costs that get passed on to the competitors. Uh, it's the demographic of the competitors getting uh, getting perhaps older because it's the older guys who sold their businesses who can afford to run the cars. Um, all sorts of factors come into it, but the cars just remain awesome. But as in period, of course, right now, Formula 2 is terribly hip. Um, a com- completely different podcast, but can I just poke my vote in for actually Brian Redman being the best racing driver that no one's ever heard of? Certainly a very strong contender, yeah. No, a fantastic driver. You know, when you think of what he achieved, the longevity of his career, um, I know that there's, there's quite a bit of friendly enmity between him and David Hobbs, but you think about these guys raced professionally for years and years and years unsuccessfully you know they're to be i hope envied and and brian redman is also such a great bloke he comes back for goodwoods and things and he'll still jump into something he's in his early 80s lives in florida but um he doesn't profess to want to be as competitive as he was in his day he said he was being paid quite well to do it back then and uh, just gets in now to uh, just relive those glory days and and my they were glory days i, I, I was just thinking of you know 
in England, it kind of Brian uh, um, Bob Evans got a Lotus Drive at probably the worst time in Lotus's career. Um, most of the other people were on the way through. So the guys that won races like Pellet, um, Gethin, were were already there and kind of came sideways to do this. Um, in America, pretty much the same. Redmond, Andretti was already uh, um, a thing. Unza was doing Indy. There, there wasn't really that promotion, I think, from the ranks. Would you agree? It, it kind of it's, you went and did this and something else. There wasn't really seen as a stepping stone on to there greater were a few things. great pros, weren't they, who were in demand for whatever, whether they're in Can Am or Five Thousand or or racing the other side of the Atlantic. Um, and you know, the, the cream always rose to the top. That was the important thing. Jarier did it in the shadow. You know, Price did it, I think. Yeah. Um, Oliver, obviously, he was in it for the long haul. Some really quite odd names do pop up here and there, but they're already kind of established. And, I think and they're known for other things absolutely. well over and above Formula 5000, yeah. aren't they? So yeah, when you say Jarier did Formula 5000, you go, no, right? And, and um, I better just make sure he did do it, but I'm sure <laughs> he, drove, <laughs> he drove his shadow. Um, but yeah, it, it, it wasn't, F2 was a stepping stone. You did F3, then you did F2. Um, although actually, of course, if you were really good, you did F3 and then went straight to F1. If you had to do F2, it was in the early days, I mean, there were ju- guys jumping from one litre Formula 3 cars into Formula 5000. People like Mike Walker, who's still racing today in historic Formula Junior, still looks the same as he did, bugger. <laughs> Just, there you go. And it's absolutely amazing. And um, the, the, the sea change from um, a little one litre Brabham, uh, which was a real bijou car uh, with a screaming sort of 10,000 rev uh, Ford Anglia engine in the back of it into uh, a massive sort of tubular Lola. Um, and he drove uh, the old Lola 142s and a 190 um, sort of monocoque car um, and kept going. He was winning races very quickly uh, in Formula 5000. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's just remarkable. And it was a, a real snapshot on history that you, you can't, uh, it, it's unforgettable. How do you reckon the brakes compared, the 72 to the 5000? Ah, uh, well, that's, that's a tough one because the brakes on the 72 inboard at the front overheated very easily and snagged. So that was actually, they were actually unimpressive. Uh, and I don't know if there was, the car, to be fair, had only just been rebuilt by Classic Team Lotus. So it was very new, shall we say, in its its second life. So maybe there were some wrinkles to iron out, whereas I felt the, the brakes on the 5000 were just there straight away and could go on and on. That's a place where modern technology helps us. A far better range of brake pad, brake material with a far greater um, temperature tolerance. So in period, probably they had pads which had to be really hot and worked in this quite small area. Now, we're spoiled. I I, I would stress that when you want to compare yourself with Brian Redman, it's not really that fair. We have more reliable engines. Okay, we have problems, but the aluminium heads and things give us far more access stuff. Brakes are better. Tires are more consistent. Because we're not fighting a tyre wall, we know what the tyres are like all the time. So that's a big difference. And also, you're driving them for 20 minutes flat out, not, um, not an hour. Yeah, yeah, and with a lot less gas in. So they were heavy cars. If they had all the fuel at the start of the race. But we're talking about gods, and we're not. You know, we're just people having fun in old racing cars. So that, there has to be a, a line there somewhere. I think privileged to be having fun in old yeah, racing cars. Exactly. That's the important thing. Yeah, and they are incredible fun. That's the, that's the defining aspect of them i think i remember um uh, at uh alton park one year uh, getting a surprise call up to drive a formula 5000 and i've been driving uh, uh, a little one liter formula junior lotus uh with simon's team one of his american customers cars and uh, duncan rebelliati who runs historic formula junior lived around the corner from me and he said um, we're a bit short of numbers at alton park you know would you like to come out in one of these can you persuade simon to 
bring his man's uh, lotus up. So I'll ask, and it wasn't a problem. And um, had a, a really good fun um, race in the in the Lotus. Managed to win my class in a British Championship uh, race, um, only to be um, only to be disqualified for running ten year old tyres, uh, which weren't the latest spec. But uh, there you go. Um, but the um, the upshot of it was that um, a chap um, Simon McDermott had a McLaren M10B, and um, he'd. Um, Found that the ups and downs of Alton Park damaged uh, um, damaged his wrist, which he'd hurt in in training in the gym. He was a Morgan Plus Eight driver, as he was used to lots of power um, and wrestling cars around, but just couldn't cope with this thing, so he couldn't do it. So um, he said, "Well, would you like to drive the um, the M10B McLaren tomorrow?" Well, you have to go around to get everyone else in the race to say they don't mind you starting at the back and whatever, and uh, managed to do that. And uh, it was absolutely outstanding. So that was a, a chance to drive an early uh, 5000, a sort of car from uh, from 1970, um, rather than the sort of later ones I um, had been a little bit more used to. And it was absolute delight. Uh, the balance of the car was exceptional. The brakes were great. The engine was fine. And uh, just loved every second of it, apart from being squeezed onto the grass by a chap who I'd followed for about three quarters of a lap uh, in a Formula One car who wasn't looking in his mirrors. Even uh, even though they're old cars, and you know, there's always safety concerns with older cars. And lots of you know modern drivers would refuse to get behind the wheel of a historic car because they'd be worried about smashing their ankles up or what have you. I accept that, but a Formula Five Thousand car, the performance of it, it's, it's so raw and joyous uh it's not the kind of thing you say no to i would say as a racing driver should, if you're a racing driver and someone offers you the chance to drive one of those cars you've got to give it a go yeah it should come on the national health it should be obligatory <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good plan I, I think that in in the cars i've driven any car where the ergonomics meets the grip meets the power meets the braking all you then have to do really is access the plateau where everything functions properly, provide you can get onto that plateau, they're all actually quite nice. The ones that are scary are one where there's some part of the equation is is either compromised or missing, right? And those are just terrifying. But a, a good F1, a good 5000, good Can-Am, any of the things we're talking about, the qualification is the good. If they're sorted, then they're fun to drive. Just as a, as a final point, is there anything kind of modern motorsport can learn from a category like F5000 now? We've already said how it was very much of its time. It's the right time for it. And I think you have to be a little bit careful about looking back and trying to recreate things. But is there is there a lesson in 5000 or is it just one of those things that was worked in that time? And We now know so much more about safety, about what we have to provide for the driver, that the Australian things that I've seen are more or less Formula 3000 cars with a big engine in the back. So it's kind of like, so what? The modern engines they're using in some of the generic formulas are so reliable and have such vast mileage available to them. And they're warranted, I believe, now. You know, if, if, if you keep everything within the parameters. So what are you changing? Yeah, it might make a bit more noise, but you can do that with a Formula 2 car, you know, a, a GP2 car. I, 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 if you try to make a replica of a period car, again, what's the point? The historic ones are out there. Just go and race them. So I kind of think they're tilting at windmills. I I, I don't really see the point. It's my personal feeling. I think the other thing is that um, back in the day, back in the Formula 5000 era, the sort of 69 to 75 over here, uh, as we said, the cars all looked different. And there was also, by and large, a pretty strong audience on the spectator banks actually appreciating what the guys were doing these days um people get their thrills out of motorsport in different ways they watch it on the computer on the internet whatever it may be they're not standing by and large um actually drinking in the experience of the whole things um but what do they see when they see modern racing they see cars that all look the same going round. um for me the, the the joy of this whole era was the fact that here we go, we're 50 years on, we can still look back fondly on those cars and say they were all different. Oh, that was that's a McLaren, that's a Lola, uh, that's a Chevron, uh, that's that's Bob Miller's Dulon or whatever it may be, or the Harrier. Um, really sort of obscure cars, but they were different and long may we continue uh, to celebrate them. There might be a lesson in the simplicity of it. You know, a lot of motorsport 
um, we've been talking a lot about you know, rules, particularly in recent uh, days, concerning Grand Prix racing, particularly. Um, it's, everything's got a bit overcomplicated, a bit overregulated, a bit overly technical, data-driven, complex. Formula 5000 just reminds you of simple motorsport, you know, basic mechanics, raw grip, not too much downforce, not too much technology, brute force, raw power. Uh, it's exciting in its essence and there is maybe this is very tricky because you just sound like you're being retrograde if you say oh let's just go back to how things were but how can you do that in a modern world that needs to be environmentally conscious etc etc but uh i do think that um there are some lessons in the in the, in getting back to the the raw simplicity of what of what what really emotes when you're you're involved in racing but then there's a problem i think of if you say okay formula one has to be the pinnacle that has to be the fastest formula then there has to be a pecking order behind it if you came out with a modern formula that was loud and everything else but was slower than formula three you'd be laughed at so instantly you want to put it in front of formula three and you're getting towards gp2 uh ability then necessarily you have to have that kind of aero we can't can't not unlearn know. it can you that's it yeah it's exactly so, right yeah the simplicity i like i think that, that modern racing when you see the number of people we're testing at donnington and a little formula three team has got five or six people per car it's so inaccessible to the ordinary person isn't exactly. it that's that's the beauty of of historic motorsport is that the cars can be run by one guy yeah. uh, even driving himself if he's got some mechanical knowledge Minim- no, minimum you, you, if you're not a mechanically minded driver you need one guy to help you out and that's just not going to be the case with any car that goes kind of post millennium uh, and that that is a shame um, but you're right the threshold is so important I think this is one of the problems electric racing has you know if it wants to be the big revolution in motorsport the, the big green revolution but the, the performance is not there yet so okay it's fine they're racing in their own controlled environments on these little you know almost indoor go-kart tracks outdoors in city centers but when they started formula and you put those cars on a on a conventional racetrack they they couldn't outpace british formula ford single seaters and that's entry level performance so when you're trying to match that against a highest level of traditional motorsport it doesn't even doesn't get even in the conversation and that is a problem you know you can't you can't achieve formula one levels of performance without all the things that kind of go against the simplicity that uh that makes formula 5000 so great again it's a different podcast i suspect um but we we've led ourselves to a place where it's going to be incredibly difficult to back out of is my opinion the when they started Formula 4, the initial budgets were so small, I thought, no. And almost immediately, teams got involved and the budgets overnight doubled from the intent. And then that's it. You know, all of a sudden, it may just have been accessible to more people. As soon as you put it in the hands of the teams, dad's got to be a millionaire and got to keep paying. That's the downside. And even even dad, who might be able to afford to buy the car, run it himself with his mate for his son, can't compete against these professional operations that are running with pro mechanics, probably a race engineer, all the data analysis they need to do, constant refettling of the car and putting it back together again. Often, even Brian Redmond's car, on occasion, would arrive on a trailer. Right? You know, it was really quite low-key. And... All the systems were there for that. We we just can't have that anymore. What amazes me now is also the the performance. You're looking back at the performance of a Formula 5000, and there are a few supercars that will do that kind of work uh, and give that level of excitement. Um, but if you look at maybe the... For sake of argument, a, a top-level historic Formula 5000 car is £150,000. Quite a lot of money, but... Relatively speaking, not, uh, because you're looking at probably twice that to get some kind of hypercar or whatever on the road. Um, this allows you to enjoy the racing of your, your heroes while you were growing up uh, for a relatively um, small amount of money. But at the end of the day, you get a hell of a lot of bang for your buck with a 5,000. 
I think that's a, a very, very good place to uh, to finish on. It's been a very enjoyable hour hearing a little bit about 5,000. I confess it's not a category I know a huge amount about, but it's... Uh, it's you know more uh, now, Ed. Well, I do, and certainly it's... Uh, well, as, as is my uh, thing, once your interest kind of peak, you then want to go and digest everything about it. So I'll, I'll probably be uh, getting, getting a few books in to, uh, to read over the coming weeks. So thanks very much, Ben Anderson, Marcus Pye, and Simon Hadfield. Uh, do check out autosport.com for the latest from the world of Formula One and the rest of motorsport on our Plus subscriber area where you can read allegedly the world's best motorsport journalists writing in-depth on all sorts of topics. Uh, Autosport Magazine, of course, out every Thursday. Check out sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. We're out every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Attention shoppers, we now have taste in the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread. That's right, an organic bread that's no longer a sedative for your taste buds. Dave's Killer Bread is on a mission to make the most of the loaf, to rid the world of GMOs, high fructose corn syrup, and artificial ingredients, and plant the seeds of good in all that they bake. Killer taste, killer texture, and always organic. Dave's Killer Bread. Bread amplified. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.